Hey everyone, welcome to Trinity Eastside. So glad you're here with us today. My name is Matthew and I'm the parish pastor here. Welcome to church. I'm gonna read to us from the Gospel of John chapter 14, verses one to nine as we continue in worship. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, that your desire is to reveal yourself to us, and you've done this through Jesus. And um, you've done this because you know that the answer that we are all looking for is found in no one else than you, because you love us. And Lord, in this season, um, we are looking to many things right now to rescue us. I pray, Father, that we would, in this moment, that we would become wholly discontent with anything other than you. And that you would just help us, Lord, to move and bend the direction of our hearts towards you. Help us with that Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So our conversation that we are listening to here in John 14 is happening the night before the crucifixion. Jesus is in the upper room. He's having the Last Supper with his friends and followers. Now, if you're wondering why in Easter are we talking about something that happened before the cross, it's because these conversations uh, in this room were meant to prepare his disciples, not just for the next 24 hours, but for the several weeks going forward. So as they prepared uh, for his ascension and most importantly, for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And these conversations that Jesus is having with his friends that night over, over dinner are, are uh, meant to carry with them deep comfort for troubled hearts. He's speaking to a room full of people in this um, whose hearts are weary um, and disquieted within them. Now, if you're wondering why is that the case, if you just back up a couple of verses to chapter 13, you see why. It's because their whole community is coming apart in front of them. Uh, Jesus has said now several times that he's about to go away. He's the center of their community. He's the head of it, the point. And he's actually leaving now. And it sounds like he's going away into something that is going to be hard on him, something that's going to involve suffering. Meanwhile, Judas Iscariot has suddenly just recently stood up and run out of dinner with no explanation. And up to this point, nobody understands that Judas is going off to portray Jesus. Judas is, Judas is just Judas, my friend, at this point. He's not Judas the betrayer. And he leaves for no reason. Jesus then says, all of you are going to fall away from me. And he points to Peter in particular, and he says, and you, Peter, before tomorrow morning are going to deny three times that you even know me. And so you can just kind of feel like the heaviness of all this just land on this room. Like, what is going on? 
Just four days ago, they had been parading into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, celebrating the arrival of the Messiah to the holy city. And now here they are, and the social fabric that they had been weaving now for years is just coming unraveled right in front of them. And Jesus, ever mindful of the inner workings of the human spirit, looks at his friends whom he loves dearly, and he says, I don't want your hearts to be troubled. And then he speaks a word over them that is so tender and loaded with imagery that they would have understood that it, um, it is his attempt, his desire to soothe their inner sufferings. And this is the word that comes to you and me today. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that a number of us who are watching this right now our hearts are currently troubled. And it's not just that we're troubled because we're in a pandemic, although sure, that too, but they're troubled because they were troubled before the middle of March with relationship longings that were not being met, with with financial pressures, with job stress, uh, with struggling children, with loneliness in our singleness or loneliness in our marriages, or failing health, aging parents, a, a failing environment, lots and lots of things to have troubled hearts over that we just then carry with us right into the middle of COVID-19 and now are trying to deal with that too. And Jesus has a word for you and me in this, and it is a word that is meant to comfort a troubled heart. And so maybe you could even just where you are right now, wherever that is, just imagine Jesus suddenly in the space with you, looking at you, knowing where you are and speaking a word to you that he intends to comfort you with. That's what he's doing here. The first thing he says is that belief is remedy for a troubled heart. Belief is remedy for a troubled heart. This is the solution he offers. I, I, I've wondered uh, for a while if he perhaps was thinking of Psalm 42 when he said that. And the reason is, is because Psalm 42, um, it, it, it says, why are you troubled? Why are you cast down on my spirit, on my soul? So David's taking counsel with his soul. He's, he's asking himself, like, what's going on? Why are you so bothered? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you so troubled and disquieted within me? And then he says, hope in God. That's the answer. That's what you're looking for. Why are you so troubled? And Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. Now, I, I'm pretty sure that someone just looking at you in this season and saying, just believe in God, that that might ring hollow for you. It certainly rings a little hollow uh, for me. It doesn't seem like it really addresses the weight and the magnitude of what I'm feeling at the moment, not to mention it's really vague and ambiguous. What does it mean to just believe in God? Well, we need to remember that when we talk about belief, we're talking about setting our hope in a direction. So placing our hope in a thing, that's, that's really what belief is. And so right now, a lot of us are hoping for a return to normal. We're hoping for um, a day when that elusive uh, normal that was before comes comes back. And the reason we're hoping for that is because we believe that whatever discomfort, whatever frustration, whatever uh, loss we're experiencing right now will somehow begin to be made up in that moment. That once we get back to normal, then what we're feeling now will be better. And yet, I know that you know this, but if we all got in time machines and went back four months to ourselves and spoke to ourselves, and I was like, I'm telling you, Matthew, in just a couple of months, 
you would be dying to live the life that you're living right now. I would say um, to my future self, future Matthew, (laughs) how is that possible? I mean, because already then, before COVID-19, there was so much to be discontent about. So many things that weren't what I hoped they would be. So many unmet expectations. So many ways that I could wish if I can just get to the other side of this, if I can just get through this challenge, if I can just finish this project, then I will begin to have the life that I finally want. I'll have the space and the margins and the quiet and the money and the whatever. But why would I want that? You see, just just a desire, just a hope, just to believe that the return to what was is gonna somehow fix what is right now without some deep internal structural changes, without some large societal structural changes is, is, I mean, it's crazy. It's not, going to, it's not going to meet what we're looking for. Jesus says what we're going to need is nothing less than to have our hope set in God. He says, set your hope in God and in me. But still we ask how and what does that mean? Why was that helpful? Why is that the remedy? Well, the second thing he says is he gives us a specific picture to set our hope in. And the hope that he offers to us is a hope that is not going to disappoint. He gives a picture to his disciples, to his friends, that carries with it an image that they can, they can wrap their hearts, they can wrap their arms around. But to get what he's talking about, you have to understand the context. So in the first century, in the ancient Near East, the way that a Jewish man and a woman would go about being married is this. They would uh, first go through what was called a betrothal. A betrothal was a very, very serious, even a legally binding ceremony where the two would make vows to one another. They would drink a cup of wine, a ceremonial practice. And that was actually the beginning of their marriage in everything but consummation. So if you're reading the Christmas story carefully, you might notice that it says that Joseph was betrothed to Mary. And we think, oh, okay, so they were engaged. Like they were going to, they were pledged to one another. But then when he finds out that Mary is pregnant, it says, and Joseph decided that he was going to divorce Mary quietly. And we think, why are you divorcing the person you're engaged to? It's because they're not engaged. They're betrothed. They are bound in a legal uh, arrangement that actually can only be dissolved through divorce. It's how serious betrothal was. And so the couple would come together. There was a ceremony with the families. There was the exchanging of vows, just like the sort of thing that happened in marriages today. And then here's the thing. At the end of the ceremony, the man would look at the woman and he would say, I'm going to go away for a bit. I'm going to go back to my parents' house. My father's house has many spaces for us. I'm going to build a room and attach it to that house so that we are able to live together. But don't worry, I promise you that if I go away to build this space for you, I will come back to get you so that you can be with me and we can live together forever. This is something that happened all over the place all the time. These were words that were spoken by almost anybody in that context who went through a betrothal ceremony. Now you think about the people sitting at that table. A number of them had said these words, men and women who had either said them or had heard them. We know Peter was married and he probably was not the only one. It was very uncommon to be a man or that age in your 20s and 30s who was not married. 
And so these guys knew this language. They knew the liturgy. They'd, they'd said the words to a woman. They'd looked in someone's eyes and they'd said, I'm going away to make a space for us, but don't worry. If I say I'm going away, you can trust that I will come back. And do you think that the hairs on their necks stood up when Jesus looked at them and essentially with in, incredible tenderness betrothed himself to them, pledged himself to them wholly in a binding way. If you read the New Testament, you might notice again and again, there's language in there about a pledge that is given to us. Often the word that is, the, the person that is associated with this pledge is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the New Testament says, is the pledge of our inheritance. And what is that inheritance? That inheritance is the family of God. It is um, essentially being married into the family of God through Jesus. That's why the Bible ends with a wedding supper. That's why the Bible ends with the church coming to Jesus as a bride adorned for a bridegroom, because the whole thing is moving towards a culmination, a peak, a, a, a climax in which the deep longings in every human heart for belonging and intimacy and connection being known, of being received, of being brought and swept up into something large and transcendent. Those deep desires in every one of us is met and satisfied in an eternal family in which Jesus takes all the nations and brings them into his house and says, you are mine. Now, Jesus intended this word to be a word of deep comfort to the people who were hearing it. The question is, is, is it a word of comfort for you and me? Well, I would imagine the answer is probably not. I mean, honestly, it feels a little bit like maybe like we're, 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 we're taught, we're fantasizing about heaven or the future. It's some sort of pie in the sky language. It's hard to really wrap it around the concreteness of my life right now and the struggles that I'm experiencing right now. And do you think that the people in that room were more heaven-minded than you and I are? Do you think that they were uh, people who were looking forward to some sort of disembodied existence in the sky? Absolutely not. They, they, they weren't that way at all. They were as planted firmly on planet earth as you and I are. And yet Jesus gives these words to them that says that the ultimate end of your story is the, is the end that you are deeply longing for. And you can count on it. I pledge myself to you. It is a hope that will not disappoint. And so the question that we have to ask as we wrestle with that is, does Jesus know what he's talking about? Is that actually comforting? Or as we love to say it, is Jesus smart? Do you think Jesus knows what you need right now, maybe more than you do? Is it possible that Jesus actually has his finger on the pulse of our longings in a way um, that is more knowledgeable and profound than even our own self-awareness? That for Jesus to offer to you and me a picture of eternal intimacy and joy, that that actually is something that is larger than what could be promised by a return to normal or beginning to date again or having a family or starting a career or getting back into school. That maybe actually what is being offered to us here is the thing we need. And Jesus finally, he answers he answers that question and tells us the way to receive that answer, and that is through him. He says, I am the way. Jesus is the way home. He says, I am the way and the truth 
and the life. And let's just imagine that in this moment, Jesus's main concern is not to create exclusive truth claims that will then later on for centuries be weaponized against people to tell them that they are wrong and we are right. That Actually, that's not what Jesus is doing here, um, even though that's how this verse is often used and even weaponized. No, Jesus is actually having a conversation with his closest friends whose hearts are troubled in a moment and he wants them to know that the love that they're looking for, the ultimate good end that they're hoping for is going to be found in him. And so he says, I am the way. I'm the way to the Father. And I'm the truth, meaning I am the truest expression of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know ultimate reality, I am the truest picture of ultimate reality because I am a part of ultimate reality. And I am the life. I am the animating presence in life that is moving all things along constantly and towards that good end for which it was created. And that good end to which I am moving things along is love. Now let's imagine that Jesus is not simply trying to throw some sort of a cheap spiritual cliche, some sort of a religious church platitude on top of actual material suffering and hoping that somehow it lightens the load of the moment. Jesus is not simply offering us some sort of a, a, an empty, hollow word that means nothing against the actual physical suffering that people are going through. He didn't mean it that way then, and he certainly doesn't mean it that way now. Jesus is always inviting you and me to take a step back from what is happening and to see it from a grander view, to get out of the micro that we all live in and to get up above the clouds and to see it from a larger meta perspective. And why is he doing that? Why is Jesus always inviting us sort of up and out and to see the bigger picture? It's because he knows, I believe he knows, that when the ultimate questions within me are answered, when the ultimate things within me are checked, it will enable me to live in the ambiguity of unanswerable questions in the present. When I have certainty around the ultimate end of a thing, I can live in the uncertainty of the right now. And when I don't have that certainty, when I don't have that ultimate question answered, everything is always up in the air. And Jesus wants you and me to have the certainty that will lock us down, that will keep us grounded. As Paul says in another place, being rooted and grounded in love. What is that love? It is the ultimate end of all things. It is your ultimate end, no matter where you are today, what you're going through, how lonely you feel, how poor you are, how scared you are, the ultimate end for you and me is good. And Jesus wants you and me to actually take him up on his word, to believe him. And that's a really hard thing to do in a moment like this. It doesn't feel like it's actually speaking to, it doesn't always feel like it really is speaking to what I'm feeling, right? Do you think Jesus knows what we need? Can we believe that he has his finger on the pulse of my desire even more so than I do? That he is more aware of myself than I am self-aware. And what he says to you and me, what he offers us is himself. And he says, bring your pain, bring your questions, bring your anger, bring your sadness home to me. It's a hope that will not disappoint. I will come through for you.